The failure of the water systems in Jackson, Mississippi has forced public schools to return to remote learning, something school leaders had hoped to never do again after the COVID pandemic. We'll hear how Jackson families are coping. Coming up on this Friday, September 2nd, you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we'll hear how some Republicans are reacting to President Biden's national address where he called MAGA Republicans a threat to American democracy. Also, what led to such popular support for political violence? And last December, India approved a low-cost, easy-to-make, patent-free COVID vaccine for use. The new numbers from the Indian government says that 70 million doses have gone into arms. And now several African countries are looking to produce it as well. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden welcomed the Labor Department's jobs report for August today, telling a White House audience that with 315,000 new jobs created last month, the economy remains on track. Analysts say a slight uptick in the jobless rate at 3.7 percent could be good news on the inflation front. The president says he's also hopeful. The bottom line is jobs are up, wages are up, people are back to work. And we're seeing some signs that inflation may be, may be, I'm not overpromising, may be beginning to ease. The president today is announcing $1 billion in federal grants to support manufacturing, clean energy, farming, biotech, and other sectors. G7 finance ministers have agreed to implement a price cap on Russian oil aimed at reducing the Kremlin's main source of revenue for the war in Ukraine. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports, details such as the cost per barrel of crude are still to be worked out. The U.S. and other G7 members hope to have the plan in place by early December. That's when a European Union embargo on Russian oil is set to take effect, as well as a ban on insuring and financing tankers carrying Russian oil. The Treasury Department, which has been pushing the price cap plan for months, says the move will help maintain global energy markets by keeping Russian oil flowing at lower prices. That, in turn, will help fight inflation. But some energy analysts doubt the plan will work because it'll be difficult to enforce. Russia has warned it will not sell oil products to countries taking part in the price cap. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. Emergency crews in California continue to battle two wildfires amid a punishing summer heat wave that's expected to last through Labor Day. From member station KCRW, Megan Jamerson reports containment of the root fire north of Los Angeles is steadily improving. As crews worked to beat out the route fire Thursday, temperatures soared to 110 degrees and firefighting activity was temporarily halted. Just the day before, seven firefighters were hospitalized with heat-related injuries. Federal workplace guidance says employees should not work in conditions at 108 degrees and above. This puts emergency crews in a conundrum as the West sees climate change increase the likelihood of extreme weather conditions happening at the same time, like drought, severe temperatures, and hotter and faster spreading wildfires. For NPR News, I'm Megan Jamerson in Los Angeles. U.S. travel this final big weekend of summer is expected to be robust. The AAA reports that despite rising costs and flight disruptions, millions of Americans are expected to travel by car and plane over the three-day holiday weekend. The Dow closed down 337. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the MBTA says half the work has been completed on the Orange Line since it shut down two weeks ago. General Manager Steve Poftak says, among other things, they've been able to quickly repair 900 feet of track between the downtown crossing and State Street stations. It's really an order of magnitude change, and I think that is, that is what we have tried to accomplish with this surge. They've had 30 days of uninterrupted time on the tracks. Poftek says the Orange Line is on schedule to reopen as planned September 19th. He also says work on the partially closed Green Line is on target. The union branch is shut down to help complete work on the new Medford branch. The head of the Department of Public Utilities is being called to testify before lawmakers about its oversight of the MBTA. The heads of the Joint Legislative Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities and Energy say they are disturbed and disappointed after federal regulators reported the department is not doing its job to ensure safety on the T. The DPU says it's created a new position to directly oversee rail transit safety. U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services is in Massachusetts today to explain some of the benefits for seniors contained in the Inflation Reduction Act. At the Waltham Senior Center, Javier Becerra said the government will be able to start negotiating prices for some high-cost drugs covered by Medicare. So that way we don't pay two to three times more for the same drugs that you get today than they pay in places like Europe. The Health and Human Services Secretary was joined by Senator Elizabeth Warren and by Assistant House Speaker Catherine Clark. Time is running out if you want to vote early in the Massachusetts primary. The Secretary of State's office reports 31,000 voters went to the polls over the past week during the in-person early voting option. 342,000 workers have already mailed their ballots for next Tuesday's election. People who have not put their ballots in the mail by now will need to use the drop-in boxes in their community. Ballots need to be received by 8 o'clock Tuesday night. If you're heading to the Cape for the long Labor Day weekend, you'll hit two-mile backups at the Bourne and the Sagamore Bridges. Traffic on Route 3 southbound is slow from Pembroke to Kingston. Should be a lovely weekend wherever you are. Clear skies tonight in the mid-50s. And then for tomorrow, sunshine warming up to about 80 degrees. And then Sunday should have sunny skies again, but still the chance of showers or thunderstorms warming to the mid-80s. Then clouding up and cooling off on Labor Day Monday. Temperatures about 73. 70 degrees now in Boston at 406. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool. A way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Last night, during a rare primetime speech, President Biden delivered a warning and took direct aim at the former president. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Biden went on to say that the country is at an inflection point and that, quote, America must choose to move forward or to move backwards. Now, there are a lot of Republicans out there who were not pleased with the speech, to say the least. And to talk more about that, we're going to bring in former Republican Representative Barbara Comstock of Virginia. Welcome. Great to be with you, Elsa. Great to have you. Okay, so what stood out to you the most from the president's speech last night? Well, listen, I am not a MAGA Republican, but the way I would have framed it, so I agree with the theme, but the way I would have framed it is I would have more highlighted Donald Trump and his Trump-supported candidates. And so I would have highlighted things like, you know, just 
uh, this week, Trump demanded that he be unconstitutionally restored to power and be put in the White House. And that just yesterday, he promised to pardon people who were violent protesters at the Capitol and beat Capitol police officers with flagpoles and stormed the Capitol. And I would have highlighted things like Doug Mastriano, who's running for governor um, in uh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. who was one of those people um, in at, at the Capitol on January 6th, who's refused to cooperate um, with the January 6th committee. And he is associating with anti-Semites and who... Uh, with the three percenters, and he dressed up in a Confederate, you know, outfit just recently, you know, the losers in the Civil War, and, you know, has has really, um, you know, has troubling background. And then I would have okay. highlighted these Trump candidates themselves instead of the more broad brush he did. But okay. definitely there is Trump candidates who are a big problem, who are anti-democratic. So I would have highlighted it more like okay, that. Okay, so you take issue yeah. with things that he did not mention. But I want to talk about the way President Biden parsed the language he did use, because he noticeably did not refer to Republicans in general. Rather, he yes. singled out MAGA Republicans, and he name-checked former President Trump a few times. And I'm wondering, you are a Republican who's been a vocal critic of Trump. Did Biden successfully make that distinction between MAGA Republicans and Republicans who don't support Trump? Or did you feel that Biden was also talking about people like you? No, I don't feel like he was talking about me, but I think he gave other Republicans, I think, you know, gave him an opportunity to kind of say, hey, he was talking about all of us, when I think he clearly wasn't. But I think the political goal, which was to get, you know, everyone talking about Trump, which you know, now a lot of these Republicans, I think foolishly, many Republicans are now kind of tying themselves to Trump in a way which I think is politically foolish, because at a time when Republicans who seem to have an advantage this year are now, instead of talking about the economy and gas prices and groceries, mm-hmm. instead of now lash themselves to the Mar-a-Lago mess and um, all of Trump's problems, and at a time when they should do with what Glenn Youngkin did last year and talk about kitchen table issues, they're instead tying themselves to this lunacy and, and Trump, who, you know, is the guy who lost the House, the Senate, the White House and the two Georgia seats. They now have put their hands into this man who's all about chaos and losing. And we're seeing all of these candidates who he endorsed well, on that who point. are now running behind. So on that point. Dumb, yeah. A significant portion of your party was outraged by Biden's speech last night, the multiple references to former President Trump. I mean, what do you think that says about Trump's influence over the whole party right now, that the conversation is still about him? I I think it's uh, deadly to the party. And I think the longer the party stays enthralled to him and tied to him, I think the longer the party is going to be losing um, in the in the long term. I think. Uh, This year, you're going to have seats like the Pennsylvania governor's race, probably the Senate race, other uh, Senate seats like, say, Blake Master and Carrie Lake in Arizona, perhaps uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia, that would have been winnable in what should be a good Republican year are probably going to be lost. And other House seats that should have been won will be lost because they've been Trump weak candidates when they could have been. Um, stronger mainstream Republicans who are going to be turned off by these, you know, radical Trump candidates who are not sellable to independents and more swing and and Republicans mm-hmm. like myself who don't want to have these me- Trump sycophants 
who are not appealing to a broader group of people. The fact that President Biden last night chose, instead of to focus on, as you call it, kitchen table issues, but instead talk about threats to democracy and in particular about former President Trump, did you feel that Biden's speech had the risk of actually elevating Trump's influence in your party in any way? What do you think? Well, no, I think it's important. I mean, the number one issue right now is the threat to democracy that I think Democrats, independents, and many Republicans um, are concerned about. So I do think that's an important issue that all Americans, you know, many Americans are concerned about. It's the number one issue. So I do think it's an issue many people want addressed. I'm just saying okay. it's better to use specifics in how you're addressing it. And I think okay. going forward, candidates, whether you're Republican or Democrat, should use those specifics. And I think they'll be stronger. And I think I would reference for everyone, Bill Barr addressed it today when he talked about Mar-a-Lago. I would quote Bill Barr saying, you should all be concerned about what uh, Donald Trump did at Mar-a-Lago because there's no excuse for it. And that's Donald right. Trump's own attorney general who said that. That is former Republican Representative Barbara Comstock of Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. A few weeks ago, NPR education correspondent Corey Turner brought us a hopeful back-to-school story from Jackson, Mississippi. Schools were open, students were back, and District Superintendent Eric Green was in a playful mood. Is this second grade? No. Third grade? What grade? Third grade. No. No. Well, since then, heavy rains overwhelmed the city's already failing water system. And earlier this week, the superintendent was forced to do the one thing he was determined not to do, send students home to learn remotely. Corey recently checked in with Green and has this story. The water situation in Jackson has been bad for years. Still, Superintendent Green says when he and I were together for the first week of school, he never imagined he'd be sending everyone home three weeks later. This right here, it's it's almost unbelievable. If I weren't living it and talking about it all freaking day, almost unbelievable. The city's been under a boil water notice for a month, but that wasn't enough to keep schools closed, Green says. Staff brought in bottled water, they boiled water in the cafeterias, and doubled down on packaged foods like muffins. But then during school on Monday, toilets across the district stopped flushing because of low water pressure. In that time, we're just trying to manage and teachers are trying to teach. And everybody who possibly can is pitching in to manually flush toilets. Imagine that. So Tuesday, Green had no choice but to close school buildings and get the message out to teachers, a message they'd been dreading. <sighs> Virtual for the remainder of the week. Latasha Bue Cancer teaches third grade reading in Jackson, and she's been using one word a lot lately, prayerfully. Prayerfully, we'll be back in the building next week. But we don't know. We don't know. That means this morning, she taught online in an eerie echo of how many of her kids spent their first grade year because of the pandemic. All right, let me make sure I got all the kids. One, two, three, four. She took attendance, four, helped several students log on, and then jumped into a lesson. The soil and excellent temperatures make it possible. That is third grader Malachi Richardson, who tells me outside of class that his mom and dad have to boil their water at home. Even if there is still low water pressure, like I think last time the water is still brown and yeah. dirty. Malachi says they also have to use their boiled water sparingly. Since we can't use our own shower, we 
take a bird bath. <laughs> That's what we call them at our house. We call them bird baths. Malachi's mom, Candy Bolden, says she bought a $5 kiddie pool and put it in the kitchen to store the water they boil. But she says cooking is still hard because you not only need clean water to cook, you need it to do the dishes too. That's the most difficult. We've eaten out more this week than we actually can afford to because it's just difficult trying to keep everything clean. When I ask Malachi's mom and dad, Michael Richardson, if having their kids home has disrupted their work schedules? Yes. <laughs> Yes, uh, profoundly so. You know, having to tag them along with me, and it's a lot more to consider than normal. Candy herself is a teacher and says things like working and learning are that much harder when you have to worry about something as basic as water. People have to feel they are comfortable enough and not in survival mode constantly so that they can thrive. And Jackson doesn't allow for that. Candy and Michael hope, as does Superintendent Green, that school will be back in person next week. And if it isn't, Mrs. Bew Cancer says she will keep telling her third graders what she's told them at the end of every Zoom class this week. I make sure that I tell them, I pray that you are okay. I pray that you have everything you need. It was great seeing you today, and prayerfully we'll see you tomorrow. Corey Turner, NPR News. Misinformation about elections is driving changes that will make it harder to run elections. Take the state of Washington, where a conservative county's leaders have cast out on something called an Albert sensor. That's a device that monitors election systems for hacking attempts. All right. Well, we'll call the afternoon uh, meeting to order. I'll make a motion that we remove the Albert sensor or shut it down. That's today on our daily news podcast, Consider This. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR, the parents of one of the survivors of the Robb Elementary School shooting talk about how life has changed for their family. On Wall Street, major stock averages slid for a third week. The Dow gave up a full percent, 338 points, to close at 31,318. S&P lost the same, nearly a full percent, to close at 3924. The Nasdaq notched a six-day losing streak. It closed at 11,631. That's down one and three-tenths percent. All the details coming up at 630 on Marketplace. It's now 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Globe, presenting Globe Summit 2022, The Next Boston, September 14th to 16th. The second annual event features speakers including actor Sam Waterston, Mayor Michelle Wu, Jamie Dimon, and more. Registration at globe.com summit. In sports after, uh, where did that come from? Walk-off win last night. The Red Sox will host the Texas Rangers again tonight. Game two of their four-game set. Nick Pavetta pitches for Boston, 7-10 game time. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. 
This is WBUR. It is 73 degrees now in the Boston area. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. This week, we've been bringing you stories from Uvalde, Texas, where a new school year is beginning. It's the first since the deadly shooting there in May. Classes have already started for some students in homeschooling programs and some who go to private schools. Well, we're just trying to relate to everyone that schools are beacons of hope. That's Joseph Olan. He's the principal of Sacred Heart Catholic School. 30 students impacted by the shooting at Robb Elementary got scholarships to attend Sacred Heart this year. Our producers, Janaki Mehta and Alejandra marquez Hanse stopped by the campus on a recent weekday after school. But before they could ask Olan any questions, he quickly started talking about a topic on just about everyone's minds in Uvalde, school security. As you see, we have a lot of polycarbonate coverings on our windows and doors. They'll be replaced by steel reinforced frames and doors. Obviously, it's all ballistic grade materials that'll cover all uh, Ballistic doors glass on you know all the outer doors and everything, and the fencing and everything. Plus, it's smaller, you know. That's Oscar Arona, who later echoed what he knows about the security at Sacred Heart. His son Noah, who survived the Rob shooting, is going there this year thanks to one of those scholarships. Noah was shot in the back and is still recovering from his injuries, but he was able to start classes last month. There's much more control. Smaller classrooms. Smaller classes as well, so he'll get more attention, which I think he's going to need. And I I think he's going to do well. That's what our hopes are, at least. We spoke with Oscar and his wife, Jessica Arona, on a rainy night in a library conference room. Noah sat at a nearby table during our conversation. Dressed in bright purple shorts and a black bucket hat, Noah mostly played his handheld Nintendo Switch. At times, he was watching and listening as we spoke. I asked Oscar and Jessica how life has changed for them and for Noah in the last three months. For one thing, we no longer make long-term plans because we're not sure how he's going to be feeling or if there's something that's going to trigger him that day. Uh, Even though he's been going through trauma counseling, the the therapy and things of that nature, there's still certain situations he's not comfortable with, even at home when it's just us three. Uh, You know, ranging from not being able to sleep at night, not wanting to leave their house, any kind of noise startles them, things of that nature. Some people don't understand that because, you know, you see him right now and he seems like... He looks normal. But, you know, even when you just reach for his shoulder that's wounded, he just kind of flinches. Uh, Just to give you an example, Normally, at the end of the day, I go one way, she goes the other way and take our showers and everything. But now he's like, okay, who's going where? And can you wait till mom gets out? Or mom, can you wait for dad gets out? I assume that is something that has changed since May 24th. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that was not the case before. I mean, it was, but now it's part of our life. I mean, we're concerned. I'm concerned. 
some of the counselors have thrown around the term the PTSD. You know, he was in there for quite a while. So now that the time frame, I think, is up to like 83 minutes or something like that, where he had to lay there, you know, with two deceased teachers and several deceased classmates. Uh, and then hear everything that was going on in the other classroom. I can't even begin to imagine that myself, no. much less a 10-year-old having to go through that. As I understand it, Noah's back in school now, right? Yes, so he's, this is his second week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is at a this is at a new school, right? It's at Sacred at Heart. School. It's at Sacred Heart Catholic School, and uh, I'm hopeful that the district will be ready in two years. That should be more than enough time for them to, you know, do what they say that they were going to yeah. do. What would ready look like for you? What would the district need to do mm-hmm. to make you feel safe in sending your child back to that district at some point in the future? Mm-hmm. Probably the first step would be to have the fences up, even though someone told me that somebody already scaled one of the fences just to see. But I think it would be a, a deterrent I need to shore up their the security, not just with police officers, but the system itself, locked doors, cameras, IDs, things of that nature. So even if somebody does get through the police, they still can't get into the classroom. And again, it's not a knock on the school. It's a tall order, but at some point in time, it's going to have to be filled. You've talked about your desire to make sure that Noah has everything he needs to cope and to grow and to be able to live as full a life as possible. I I want to ask you about the financial toll that this has taken on your family. I know you mentioned taking him back and forth to appointments. How mm-hmm. have you been dealing with that? Has it been a strain for you all? It has been, but we both work. And um, I went back to work. The week, we both went back to work the week after. The week after we got home. Um, because we know that we, ha- we need to work to pay our bills. We uh, have applied in some places for... Uh, help with, you know, funds. There's a lot of money that has been distributed, donated to assist us and to assist the deceased and everything. And we don't see a lot of that because there's a bureaucracy that we have to deal with. What do you want people to know about what your family lived through that day and what you have been living through every day since then? Uh, I think the biggest thing that we were dealing with was we felt guilty because our son survived. Amidst all this carnage and everything, we were asking ourselves, why? Did our, how did I, our son survive? We didn't have uh, an opportunity to mourn. Uh, you know, it's sorry it's difficult for me to discuss you go because um i mean i think first and foremost what's gotten us through is our faith in god i've just you know it's been bottled up and i i I haven't really shown any emotion um to let it out Uh, oscar has been more i do because i can't keep it in and um again only because i mean we have to be strong for him yeah and i think what a lot of people don't realize is that they they say that we're we were the lucky ones we don't feel lucky we feel bad for our friends our neighbors our relatives that lost their babies they just don't know what our fears are Our fears are that our son 
We want him to grow up and have a healthy, normal life. But we also have to prepare for it, and then maybe that's not going to happen. What do you want the world to know about your son? Well, unfortunately, he is not the same. But he is, um, he is a funny kid, always trying to make us laugh. Um, a smart aleck sometimes. Yeah, I think he gets um, that from his mom. Like that, yeah. <laughs> um, he loves Pokemon. Um, he's very loves creative. Uh, he loves art. to draw. He art. likes to draw and paint. Um, so I think all of that, the way he used to be, will be one day. Because we're not going to let this rule our lives. And we're going to go forward and overcome. That was Oscar and Jessica Arona. Their son, Noah, survived the shooting at Robb Elementary School. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up this half hour, we'll hear about British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, who will likely succeed Boris Johnson as Prime Minister of Britain. In the forecast, sunny skies for the remainder of the afternoon and evening. Clear and cool tonight, falling to the mid-50s. Sun's back tomorrow. Calm winds, a little bit milder, hovering around 80. And for Sunday, moving to the mid-80s with sunny skies. Could get rained on, too. And then Labor Day, clouds take over. Should be temperatures right around 85 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 70 degrees now at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And the Fresh Grass Festival in the Berkshire Mountains, the best of bluegrass and roots, from September 23rd through 25th. More at FreshGrass.com WBUR. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is urging Americans to work together to preserve democracy ahead of the November midterm elections. During a fiery speech last night in Philadelphia, Biden criticized his political opponents, especially those who believe the former president, Donald Trump's lies, that the 2020 election was stolen. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre says this was not a political speech. Standing up for democracy is not political. Denouncing political violence is not political. Defending rights and freedom is not political. Making clear that the challenges uh, facing the nation is not political. Uh, We don't call any of that political. We see that as leadership. Biden pointed to the large number of Trump backers who continue to deny the election results and are sowing doubt about future elections. Pennsylvania will be a critical battleground state in November, and both the president and former President Trump are spending lots of money and time there. Employers added another 315,000 jobs last month. As NPR Scott Horsley tells us, hundreds of thousands of new people joined or rejoined the workforce. 
The total number of people drawing paychecks now is higher than it was before the pandemic. The unemployment rate inched up in August, but only because nearly 800,000 people came off the sidelines and started looking for work. President Biden hailed the new report as a sign the economy is moving in the right direction. The great American jobs machine continues to come back. America workers are back to work, earning more, manufacturing more, building an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. Average wages rose 5.2 percent over the last year, not enough to keep pace with inflation. But the big jump in available workers may help relieve some of the upward pressure on prices. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks ended lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's heavy traffic on stretches of the Mass Turnpike as people head out for the long holiday weekend. There are also backups getting onto Cape Cod. Tourism officials are expecting a busy Labor Day weekend there. As WBUR's Jonathan Kane reports, it has been a strong summer season on the Cape. The Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce says businesses and parks are reporting it's been an incredible summer. Paul Nidzwicki is the Chamber's CEO. A lot of the numbers seem to be consistent with what we saw last summer, which was really sort of a, an unprecedentedly strong summer for Cape Cod. He expects plenty of visitors this weekend, but adds businesses are short-staffed, especially with college-aged workers back at school. Business owners are working as hard as they can to provide services, but the labor supply shortage that they're dealing with is of an unprecedented nature. Nidzwicki says the Cape's labor shortage is partly the result of high housing costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. Investigators say a Hyannis man killed his wife inside their home this morning and then took his own life. The Cape and Islands DA says two children, ages 7 and 11, were also there but were not physically harmed. The children are now in the custody of the Department of Children and Families. Recent coyote attacks on pets are raising safety concerns. In the latest incident, two dogs on a walk with their owner were attacked in Cohasset. One of the animals was so badly wounded it had to be euthanized. Carol Holmquist is director of advocacy for the MSPCA. She says anyone who's approached by a coyote should make noise, holler at the animal, and move away. They are naturally afraid of humans. They don't want to be around us, but when um, they view us as a food source or people are feeding them, um, that can change. And so we really want to get them to be afraid of us. Holmquist advises that pets be leashed and not left outside alone. She tells homeowners to keep lids on their trash and cut back brush in yards so coyotes don't have a place to hide. It's 4.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Pretty gorgeous out there right now. Sunny skies for the remainder of the afternoon and evening. Clear and cool tonight, falling to the 50s. Sun's back tomorrow. Calm winds a little bit milder, hovering around 80. And for Sunday, moving to the mid-80s with sunny skies, we could get rained on as well. And for Labor Day, clouds take over with temperatures dipping to the mid-70s. This is WBUR 70 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, 
designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. President Biden's speech last night focused on what he called the extremism of MAGA Republicans. He said they are behind growing popular support for political violence, and he also identified white supremacists as a divisive force. NPR's Odette Youssef covers domestic extremism and has been looking at the broader context for this dangerous moment in American history. Hey, Odette. Hey, Ari. What kind of reaction did you see on the far right to Biden's speech last night? Well, perhaps not surprisingly, there was a lot of grievance expressed on far-right social media forums. You know, the site Intelligence Group was monitoring these platforms and found people claiming that Biden was justifying violence against Trump supporters, you know, even though Biden spoke quite clearly, Ari, about the need for all Americans to reject political violence. Um, Some even were using the speech to renew their longstanding calls for civil war. Um, But honestly, Ari, you know, when Biden was talking about extremism last night, these were not the people he had in mind. Well, he singled out MAGA Republicans specifically. What more did he say about that group? Well, he said they, quote, represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. You know, Ari, when we traditionally have talked about extremists, we've been talking about people who are willing to use violence and physical intimidation to achieve their political or ideological goals. And we've already seen this. You know, we saw it on January 6th at the Capitol. We've been seeing it locally throughout the pandemic with street clashes between ideological opponents, uh, with physical threats and harassment against election officials, teachers, and librarians. And so we're in an environment now where this is affecting everyday people. I think what's been tricky, though, is articulating exactly how this connects to an erosion of democracy. I spoke with Eric Ward about this. He's with the Western States Center, and he's been tracking extremism for decades. These extremists talk a lot about freedom, but what they spend most of their time doing in terms of policy is undermining everyone else's freedom. And when they can't get their way, they threaten violence. That's extremism. Did he explain what he means by undermining everyone else's freedom? Yeah, I mean, he's talking about things, Ari, that frankly weren't really mentioned in last night's speech, but which are causing real concern about the erosion of democracy in this country. And, you know, right now, this is less about specific extremist groups than it is about mainstream political actions. So, for example, you know, new restrictions uh, to voting access in many states. Here's Professor Anthea Butler from UPenn. There's so many things that have happened on the state level, purging of the voting rolls like in Georgia, or you know, making sure that people don't get you know uh, uh, absentee ballots like in Texas. And it's very clear that between those kinds of things and gerrymandering, that there is a serious problem on the state level about voting. And beyond voting, you know, we're also seeing state level restrictions on abortion access, on gender affirming care for trans people. You know, these are the freedoms that Eric Ward was referring to that are being stripped away. So last night, you know, Biden didn't really talk about how race and gender are playing into this moment. And he also failed to use the word immigrant even once in the speech, which was really surprising, especially to some immigrant advocates who view the recent surge in hate crimes as an outcome of anti-democratic political speech and as an indicator of growing extremism. And Pierre's Odette Youssef, thanks a lot. Sure thing. 
Back in January, we told you about a COVID vaccine that had just been approved for use in India. The vaccine has some very attractive properties. It's low cost, easy to make, and patent-free. The vaccine's inventors were hoping it would help address questions of vaccine equity for countries that can't afford to make or buy expensive vaccines like the ones sold by Pfizer and Moderna. As NPR's Joe Palka reports, early indications are that's the case. The vaccine is called Corbivax. It comes from the research of two scientists at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. My name is Maria Elena Botazzi. I'm Peter Hotez. Hotez says their strategy was to use well-established biotech processes to make the vaccine using low-cost ingredients. Since it was authorized for use last December, Indian health authorities have administered quite a few doses. Here's where things stood when I spoke with Hotez on August 10th. The new numbers from the Indian government says that 70 million doses have gone into arms. Those arms belong to adolescents, but the vaccine has just been authorized for use as a booster in people 18 and older. Hotez says the vaccine appears to offer lasting protection against severe disease. And Botazi says not only is it effective... I think the most impressive is the fact that it's been so safe that we have not seen any pharmacovigilance that says otherwise. Pharmacovigilance being the technical term for watching out for problems related to a drug or vaccine. In addition to using low-cost materials, Botazi says they also wanted to be culturally sensitive. For example, they made sure no products derived from animals were needed to produce the vaccine. Our technology is considered vegan, and therefore we can develop this vaccine as a halal-certified vaccine. Botazi says that makes the vaccine attractive to a country like Indonesia with a large Islamic population. Prashant Yadav says it wasn't certain at first countries would take to Corbivax. Yadav is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. A lot of people initially thought the global market for COVID vaccines is quite saturated. Will there be a place for a late entrant, even if it comes at a lower cost and even if it comes with more open intellectual property. But the answer to that question appears to be yes. In addition to a partnership with Biological E in India, a company called Biopharma in Indonesia is planning to make Corbivax, and African countries are showing interest. Corbivax has been submitted and approved by the Bozona Medicines Regulatory Authority. Mohomuti Masaba is an advisor to the Botswana government on COVID-19. He says Corbivax has not yet been used there, but he expects it will be, as well as in other African countries. The plan for the country is to start mass production in Botswana. New variants like Omicron have prompted the Texas team that made Corbivax to develop a version that will work against all varieties of the virus. One member of the U.S. Congress was so impressed with Hotez and Botazi that she nominated the pair for the Nobel Peace Prize. Lizzie Fletcher is a Texas Democrat. Their effort is to bring health, peace, and security to all people by making it possible to vaccinate the world. And so I think that that's very much in keeping with the purpose of the prize. Winning a Nobel Prize is probably a long shot, but that's okay with Peter Hotez. I'm on cloud nine, and I think Dr. Batazzi is as well, in part because, you know, it's not just the recognition, it's the fact that we showed there's another way to do this. A way for a small, academically focused lab to make a vaccine that's safe, effective, and affordable. Joe Palka, NPR News.
Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike. Their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. And from Avalara, managing the sales tax compliance process with cloud-based rate and rule updates, as well as automatic return filing. More at avalara.com. Avalara, tax compliance done right. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A provision in a new teacher's contract in Minneapolis is now the center of a debate over diversity and seniority. The new contract has a clause designed to protect teachers of color from seniority-based layoffs. Teachers overwhelmingly approved the contract last spring, but conservative groups have filed a lawsuit saying the measure discriminates against white teachers. Elizabeth Schockman from member station Minnesota Public Radio reports. When Minneapolis teachers ended a three-week strike, Minneapolis union leader Sean Layden called their new agreement groundbreaking. Our historic gains on this contract around addressing things like seniority-based layoff protection for teachers of color is going to be a nation-leading model. A provision in that contract upended decades of last-in, first-out employment practice by promising to protect teachers who are part of, quote, underrepresented populations if the district lays off teachers. The Minneapolis teacher force is predominantly white. Only 20% are people of color. The purpose of the provision is to retain those teachers who may have fewer years on the job. While the union calls it historic, conservative groups and media outlets have a different perspective. They've been blasting the provision, calling it a racist measure that discriminates against white teachers. The Minneapolis School District is facing backlash after a new union contract that would require white teachers be fired first, regardless of seniority. This, in some ways, is a shift for conservative organizations, which often object to seniority protections in union contracts. Here's Dan DeSalvo, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a conservative think tank. It restricts management rights, meaning it doesn't let principals make decisions about, you know, who best is best to retain. But a new lawsuit filed by the conservative group Judicial Watch argues against the change being made to the district's seniority practice. It alleges the Minneapolis contract selects certain teachers for layoffs on the basis of race and violates the Minnesota Constitution's guarantee of equal protection under the law. In a statement, the Minneapolis Teachers Union says the effort by conservatives is an attempt to divert attention from the real crisis of fully staffing schools. Union President Greta Callahan says more than 75% of the mostly white union voted in favor of the contract. We need to be supporting educators as they come in, especially those who are underrepresented that we know reflect our students. Having educators of color is, is what's best for kids. 60% of Minneapolis students are kids of color, and a considerable body of research shows teachers of color make a significant positive impact on academic achievement, behavior, and graduation rates for students of color. There have long been disputes over seniority provisions in union contracts. And labor historian Peter Ratcliffe says that's a history that goes back to the 1930s. He commends the teachers' union for the move it made. The action by the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers to try to prioritize keeping teachers of color at work and and front and center is an extraordinary step and and a step that can impact the way the system as a whole operates. It's a decision, though, that could be altered by legal arguments. Despite the controversy over changing seniority-based layoffs, union leader Callahan says much more needs to be done to increase the diversity of the district's teaching force. 
She says her union has long asked for more investment in mentoring programs and support for new teachers of color. And I think that's like the biggest takeaway I want people to know about this. Meanwhile, students return to classes in Minneapolis in a matter of days, and layoffs are the last thing on administrators' minds. In fact, the district is still scrambling to hire staff for nearly 300 open positions. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Shockman in Minneapolis. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Big Ten Conference just signed a historic billion-dollar broadcast deal. So why will none of its players be getting direct money from the deal? That story is coming up on All Things Considered. People heading out for the long holiday weekend are hitting the brakes on parts of the Mass Turnpike this afternoon. Traffic westbound is backed up 11 miles from Grafton out to Auburn. The pike is also slow through Sturbridge. People driving to Cape Cod are hitting a one-mile backup at the Bourne Bridge and the Sagamore Bridge. Stretches of Route 3 south are also slow. It's now 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering a part-time master's degree in arts administration and a graduate certificate in arts management, focused on the management, fundraising, policy, and legal issues of mission-driven arts organizations. Learn more at bu.edu slash met. After walk-off win last night, the Red Sox host the Texas Rangers again tonight. It's game two of their four-game series, 7-10 start time. Nick Pavetta pitches for Boston. Beautiful holiday weekend on the way, except maybe for the holiday itself. The forecast tonight, nice starry skies on the cool side in the mid-50s. Tomorrow should warm to about 80 with beautiful sunshine. Sunday, a little less sun, the chance of showers and thunderstorms inching to the mid-80s. And then as the Labor Day holiday rolls around, clouds should roll in. Maybe some evening showers on Monday, only reaching about 73 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 70 degrees now in the Boston area at 450. On last week's Wait, Wait, Tom Bodet reflected on the rewards of parenthood. After raising three boys, I got a whole cupboard full of jock straps. That... <laughs> I mean, I hold on them for sentimental reasons. Of course. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. We offer support and protection to people worn down by the week's news. Join us for this week's show with special guest comedian Chris Estrada. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. On Monday, we'll learn who the new British Prime Minister is. Conservative Party members have cast their final votes today. Polling suggests it is likely to be Liz Truss. She is currently the Foreign Secretary. And Ben Jude has written about what her leadership would mean for Britain's role around the world. He is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much for having me. You describe Liz Truss as a political chameleon. What do you mean by that? Liz Truss has made a career by telling whatever audience she was right in front of at a given time what they wanted to hear. She began her political career at Oxford. She was a Liberal Democrat and she was a campaigner for the legalisation of cannabis and for the abolition of the royal family, two causes that were very popular amongst young Liberals at the time. Then when she decided she wanted to make a career in politics, she became a Conservative and she began her career as an MP at a time when the Conservative Party was dominated 
supported by people who wanted Britain to stay in the European Union. The moment that people who supported Brexit took over, she became an arch-Brexiteer mm. and became an incarnation in the eyes of radicals uh, of that cause. So that political malleability seems like it would make it difficult to predict what kind of a leader she would be as prime minister. And yet you say she's a hardliner on foreign policy. What leads you to that conclusion? There is a through line going through those political transformations, which is a kind of libertarian idealism, an anti-authoritarianism. She's always had admiration for Margaret Thatcher, always really disdained the Soviet Union or the Chinese Communist Party. And she has been Britain's foreign secretary during the war in Ukraine. And she thinks that Britain needs to be tougher, harder, offer more support for the Zelensky government, rally the United States, press them when they're not being tough enough. And she thinks that we need to get tougher on China too. Hmm. So do you expect her to chart a course that is more or less similar to Boris Johnson on the major issues facing the world today? She's going to have more risk appetite than Boris Johnson. If Boris Johnson asked three people's opinion before doing something internationally, she'll only ask one. If Boris Johnson was at times tempted to cool it down in discussions with the Americans or the Chinese, she's going to be tempted to crank it up. But she's pretty chaotic, like Boris Johnson. And the question for her is, is she going to be able to execute any of this when she can't get her hands on the levers of state? How do you think she'll get along with the US and the Biden administration? Boris Johnson knew he was really disliked by Biden and the people around him. And he was actually always tempted to be a bit deferential in conversations. She doesn't think like that at all. She's very straight talking to American officials, think that uh, the Americans refer to our relationship as a special relationship when there's nothing special about how America is treating Britain when it comes to uh, trade. That, that, that is considered slander in some circles. For a British prime minister to say there's nothing special about that relationship would be shocking. Well, I think that's the view in Washington, but people have come to realize in the United Kingdom over the last few years, actually, America has plenty of special relationships. We're just one of many. Do you think her risk-taking is likely to get her into trouble? I mean, I think about risk-taking in the United States that led to wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that, you know, dragged on for years. The issue with Liz Truss is that she's fascinated by foreign affairs and making an impact and trying to stand up to Russia and China when she is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic and trying to run up uh, new flags on it as it's hurtling right into an iceberg. And that iceberg is the energy crisis in which energy costs are soaring in Britain and she's not proposed any solutions to this. Where does she stand on this? Not clear. That's Ben Judah of the Atlantic Council talking about the likely new British Prime Minister Liz Truss. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. There's a lot of money to be made in college sports. Just ask the Big Ten Conference, which recently announced an exclusive broadcast deal with CBS, NBC, and Fox. Various reports have the seven-year deal estimated to be worth more than $7 billion. It's a historic amount of cash, but as NPR's Andrew Limbong reports, none of it will be going directly into players' pockets. A few weeks ago at a training camp press conference, Ohio State quarterback C.J. Stroud was asked by a reporter if a cut of the Big Ten broadcast deal should be going to the athletes. Um, I mean, I don't 
I'll probably have to think about that a little more, but just off riff, I would say yes. <laughs> he goes on to give a more diplomatic answer, saying that, yeah, his tuition is covered, and he's grateful for that, but... Uh, me personally, my mom has always taught me to know my worth. Jason Stahl is the head of the College Football Players Association, or CFBPA. They're not even pretending anymore. It's about money. It's about creating the biggest deal you possibly can so you can get a lot of good press in the sports and entertainment industry. The CFBPA isn't a union, but more like an advocacy and organizing group that's argued that athletes playing in this upper tier of college football should get a cut of the revenue. NPR reached out to the Big Ten for a response, but they didn't get back to us in time. Stahl says that in the past, the Big Ten would have argued that everything they do is in the service of educating the student-athlete. But now, with this deal, and over the summer adding two California schools to the conference, that pretense is gone. Because the idea that a college athlete getting on a cross-continental flight um, to play a game is somehow in service of an academic agenda is obviously absurd. There's been one recent change that's allowed college athletes access to a source of income. About a year ago, after a Supreme Court ruling, the NCAA changed their rules to allow student athletes to monetize off their name, image, and likeness. This means now college athletes are allowed to get endorsement deals and do commercials. But that's third-party money, not money coming from the team, school, or conference system. I think that the money that they're making for the universities definitely outweigh the the price of that college tuition. Jordan Meacham is on the leadership committee of the CFBPA. He's also a former college football player himself, mostly playing at Sacred Heart University before moving to South Dakota State University. And he says that for him, getting paid would have meant that he didn't have to stress out about regular expenses, food, rent, books. If I would have been able to receive some sort of compensation or some kind of help, I would have not focused on the other things as much and put more focus into academics and football and so on. Victoria Jackson is a sports historian at Arizona State University. She says, historically, we as a culture understood the athletic scholarship as a fair trade for their efforts. But now these athletes play for schools that are bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars, conferences that are bringing in now billions of dollars and an NCAA system in total that's bringing in close to 20 billion dollars annually. Football and basketball take up a lot of the conversation around college sports because they bring in the money, money that's used to subsidize other sports. Which introduces a racial dynamic to this, says Jackson, considering the top-tier players in NCAA football and basketball are majority black. And the athletes who are being subsidized are often the privileged kids who play water polo or rowing or tennis or golf and are less likely to be in need of having you know, a, a scholarship experience as the reason they get to go to college. She says she'd like to see the conferences writing this, but it might again come upon the Supreme Court to do something about it. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife who will do whatever it takes to save their congregation. In theaters and streaming on Peacock now. From CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft, at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. 
More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. From TIAA, dedicated to helping people secure their financial futures with lifetime retirement income. Learn more at TIAA.org slash never run out. And should be on the cooler side tonight in the mid-50s with clear skies, light breezes. Tomorrow should warm to about 80 with beautiful sunshine. Then Sunday, a little less sun. Should have showers and thunderstorms sometime in the afternoon. It's 4.59. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The unemployment rate inched up in August, but only because hundreds of thousands of people started to look for jobs. Coming up this hour, how that jump in the workforce could take some pressure off inflation. Today is Friday, the 2nd of September, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, Elisa Mullins. Also ahead, last night a man attempted to assassinate Argentina's vice president outside her home. She's somebody whose image and whose politics have, have kind of transcended outside of Argentina. She's a strong figure of leftist governments in Latin America. We'll have the latest on the investigation. We'll follow the candidates for Massachusetts governor in the run-up to Tuesday's primary election. And remember the man who served as the White House pastry chef for 25 years under five different presidents. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration is seeking an estimated $47 billion in emergency funding from Congress. NPR's Tamara Keith reports the request includes additional money for the war in Ukraine, the pandemic, monkeypox, and disaster relief. The White House is asking for $22 billion in COVID relief funds, the same amount the administration has been unsuccessfully asking for all year. An official told reporters at this point, quote, we do not have enough funding to get through a surge in the fall. The White House is also asking for nearly $14 billion for assistance to Ukraine. Just the latest ask as Russia's war in Ukraine drags on. Another $6.5 billion would go to disaster relief and electrical grid resilience. Republicans in Congress have in the past asked that such requests be offset with budget cuts elsewhere. But the White House insists that emergency funding doesn't require offsets. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The U.S. military is sending an assessment team to Pakistan as the country begins to recover from catastrophic flooding. NPR's Greg Myrie reports millions have been forced from their homes and are in desperate need of humanitarian aid. The head of the U.S. military's Central Command, General Michael Carrilla, called Pakistan's Army Chief to express condolences and discuss possible flood assistance. The military's transport planes delivered supplies to the region throughout the 20-year U.S. war in neighboring Afghanistan. U.S.-Pakistan relations were badly strained over the course of that war. Nonetheless, the U.S. is offering to join other countries in assisting Pakistan following torrential monsoon rains. Those floods killed more than 1,000 Pakistanis and left roughly one-third of the country underwater. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. 
The German government has announced a $28 million settlement with the families of those killed in a terrorist attack at the 1972 Olympics in Munich. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports 11 athletes and coaches from Israel were killed by Palestinian militants during the Games. The figure, which includes payments already made, is a big increase from the initial 10 million euro offer to the families ahead of the 50th anniversary of the attack, which will be commemorated on Monday. On September 5, 1972, members of the Palestinian group Black September broke into the Olympic Village and killed two Israeli Olympians, taking nine more hostage. All nine hostages and a police officer died during a botched rescue attempt by German police. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting from Berlin. Stocks on Wall Street closed lower today. The Dow was down 337 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston City Councilor and Suffolk County DA candidate Ricardo Arroyo says newly released documents about a 2005 sexual assault case against him show that investigators closed the case because there was no crime committed. As WBR's Ali Jarmanning reports, a judge unsealed the documents at Arroyo's request. The Arroyo campaign released four pages from the file. They show that three months after the case was opened, a Suffolk assistant district attorney sent an email closing out the investigation. She wrote, quote, based on the assessment of the information we had, there was no crime committed. The victim in the 2005 case told the Boston Globe that she stands by her allegations. Arroyo's rival, DA Kevin Hayden, said in a statement today that nothing in the file indicates the allegations were unfounded. The alleged victim in a second case from 2007 has said that Arroyo did not sexually assault her. Arroyo denies he was ever informed of either investigation at the time and denies the allegations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Boston housing inspectors have issued just a handful of citations for apartment violations during the hectic college student move-in this week. Teams of inspectors were deployed in Alston, Brighton, Back Bay, Fenway, and Mission Hill. Assistant Housing Commissioner Paul Williams says there could be more citations. I mean, in the coming weeks after folks have been in their units, um, we might see a bump up in, in, in calls. But certainly as, as, uh, at the move, time of moving in, we're not seeing a whole lot at the moment. Renters who are having problems with their landlords are encouraged to contact the city's 311 hotline for help. Massachusetts primary is not until Tuesday, but already hundreds of thousands of voters have cast their ballots. The Secretary of State's office reports more than 31,000 voters went to the polls over the past week for in-person early voting. 342,000 voters have already mailed in their ballots. They need to be received by 8 o'clock Tuesday night. Of course, you can also vote in person on Election Day. Clear skies tonight in the mid-50s. Sunshine tomorrow, about 80 degrees. For Sunday, sunshine, a few clouds around, temperatures in the mid-80s, and then gray skies for Labor Day. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Working people 
Got some good news heading into the Labor Day weekend. Workers are still in high demand. We learned today that U.S. employers added 315,000 jobs last month. And that means employment is now back to pre-pandemic levels, with more than 3.5 million jobs added so far this year. Wages are also climbing, though not fast enough to keep up with inflation. Still, President Biden says the economy is moving in the right direction. Bottom line is jobs are up, wages are up, people are back to work, and we're seeing some signs that inflation may be, may be, I'm not overpromising, may be beginning to ease. NPR's Scott Horsley has been studying what else today's jobs report reveals. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. Sounds like employers are still hiring at a rapid pace, and yet the unemployment rate went up last month. Can you explain what's going on there? Unemployment did inch up a bit, but only because a huge number of people entered or re-entered the workforce. Almost 800,000 people came off the sidelines in August and started looking for work. Many of them found jobs right away. Some did not. And you only get counted as unemployed if you're looking for work. So the unemployment rate rose. But it's still just 3.7 percent, which is very low by historical standards. And there's still a ton of job openings out there. So a lot of those new job seekers should be able to find work pretty quickly. Any idea why almost 800,000 people would suddenly start looking for jobs last month? Good question. Uh, Or to put it another way, what took them so long? Uh, You know, up until last month, jobs had been coming back more quickly than workers had. In fact, earlier this summer, we actually saw a drop in the number of people looking for work. So that August turnaround is encouraging. Part of it could be the new school year, which might be freeing up parents to go back to work. Part of it could be people feeling less worried about COVID. Those would be the positive explanations. On the negative side, uh, inflation could be a factor. Betsy Stevenson, who's an economist at the University of Michigan, says some people might feel like they have to go back to work just because the cost of living keeps going up. People are being sort of pushed by the rising prices to think uh, my savings are getting hit a little bit too hard. And we've been seeing people in the last few months dip into their savings. Whatever the explanation, the share of people who were working or looking for work increased significantly last month. For women in their prime working years, that share is basically back to where it was before the pandemic, which is really encouraging. You might remember that a lot of working women dropped out of the labor force early in the pandemic. The share of working age men, however, still has a way to go to get back to pre-pandemic levels. Let's talk about inflation. The president said there are signs that inflation might be easing. We know gas prices are down. What else is going on there? Today's report may offer some good news on that score. Inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve have been worried that the job market is overly tight and that if there aren't enough workers to go around, both wages and prices could then spiral out of control. If that's what you're worried about, Stevenson says, this big influx of workers should come as some relief. The Fed's concern is that if people aren't coming into the labor force willing to take those jobs, that demand for workers is just going to create inflationary pressure. But if instead that demand for workers is drawing people back into the labor force, we'll be able to meet employers' demands for hiring without it creating additional inflationary pressure. So we still have a tight job market, but not as tight as it was. And that could take a little wind out of the inflationary sales. The stock market seemed to read it that way this morning. Stocks rallied when the report first came out, but then investors fell back in a funk and stocks ended down about 1%. NPR's Scott Horsley, thanks a lot. You're welcome. A man aimed a loaded handgun at point-blank range at the face of the vice president of Argentina last night. But the gun failed to fire, and Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner is still alive. The suspected gunman has been detained. 
Argentina's president has called the incident, quote, the most serious event since we recovered democracy. Here with more details is Natalie Alcoba, a journalist based in Buenos Aires. She is outside the courthouse where a judge has been taking witness statements on what happened to Fernandez. Welcome. Hello, how are you? I'm good. So can you tell us a little more about what happened last night? Yes. So at around 9 p.m. local time, uh, the vice president was returning home to her apartment in a upscale neighborhood of Buenos Aires. This has been uh, the scene for over a week now of very enthusiastic uh, demonstrations and rallies in support of her, which stem from a, a corruption case that she's currently in in the middle of but people have right. been have been rallying and defending her and, and kind of showing their their support of her outside of her house and so there was a large crowd and there is this scene that that is is captured on by several uh, you know cell phone videos and a man does pull out a, a revolver and and pulls the trigger and nothing fires out she kind of raises her hands crouches a bit the man pulls away and is and is then chased by people who who have seen what has happened and, and quickly apprehended by the federal police, mm -hmm. who later retrieve a, a gun, and he has been detained. What do we know about this man so far? Do we know anything about motive? We do not. I mean, this is early hours in, in the investigation. Um, his name is Fernando Andres Savag Montiel. He's 35 years old. He's, he's born in Brazil, but appears to also be uh, an Argentine uh, citizen. And that's, that's about as, as okay. concrete as we have at this stage. Okay, well, let's just step back for a bit and talk about Fernandez, because, as you mentioned, she's in the middle of a corruption trial at the moment. Can you explain why she's being prosecuted and then also tell us, you know, she's been a fairly divisive figure in the country. Can you explain the context for that? Yes. So Fernandez de Kirchner is probably, I would say, one of, if not the most polarizing political figures in, in Argentina today, you know, is, is deeply loved, but then uh, also strongly reviled by different sectors of, of society. She's in the late stages of a corruption trial um, that dates back to her years as president, which were from 2007 to 2015. Uh, she's accused of leading like an illicit association during her years in the presidency that that essentially siphoned state dollars into public works contracts that were awarded to a family friend. She has repeatedly declared her innocence and says that she is a victim of judicial and political persecution. And so she spoke some more about that last <laughs> week. And it was the culmination of those two events that that have led to these these strong demonstrations out on the street, um, different clashes as well between police and and people who support her. Um, so it's been increasingly tense here. Yeah. Well, since what happened last night, can you talk about how people have been reacting, not just the government, but but people all around the country and beyond Argentina? Absolute horror, uh, really. I mean, the images that that you see are are quite. Are quite shocking. Um, she's received, you know, expressions of, of solidarity and support from numerous leaders um, across Latin America. Uh, you know, the, the, the Pope um, issued a, a telegram to her, uh, expressing his, his support. 
you know, it's it's certainly news around the world. I mean, she's she's somebody whose whose image and whose whose politics have have kind of transcended outside of Argentina. She's a strong figure of leftist governments in Latin America that have had different moments in power, and certainly Latin America is seeing in some countries like a return to leftist governments. And so the repercussions have been huge. It's also clear that like the political rhetoric has. Uh, become increasingly aggressive here in Argentina, certainly in the last couple of weeks in the, in the wake of this latest stuff on the corruption trial. So very strong language yeah. and back and forth from both sides. That is Natalie Alcoba, a journalist based in Buenos Aires. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It can be pretty terrifying to show off your baking in front of discerning judges, as any fan of the Great British Bake Off knows. I don't like the outside of it. I think your piping work is not good. But I must say, I find it a pleasant cake. If you shut your eyes, it's a nice sponge cake. Okay, now imagine doing that for almost 25 years, only your judge isn't Paul Hollywood, it's the First Lady. You now have an idea of how tough a job Roland Messnier had as White House pastry chef. Through more than two decades of service, he made desserts for five presidents, their First Ladies, and countless dignitaries and guests. Messnier died last week in hospice care. He was 78. His life began in the tiny eastern French town of Bonnet as World War II was winding down. He was the seventh of nine children. At that time, everything was scarce. He explained to an audience at the JFK Museum in Boston back in 2019, there was no running water or electricity. No TV, (laughs) no uh, what you call blackberry, blueberry, raspberry, whatever. But a love for baking was in abundance. One of his brothers ran a bakery, another had a pastry shop. By age 14, Messnier became a baker's apprentice. From there, his career took him to Paris, Hamburg, and London. Eventually, he became head pastry chef at a Virginia resort, and in 1979, a rep for the First Lady approached him with a job offer. You know, Mrs. Rosaline Carter is looking for a pastry chef. I said, good, keep looking. <laughs> you don't want to go? I said, no, I have no desire. I don't want to go to Washington because they are crazy over there. I'm not going. Well, he did go to the White House. There, Messnier was exacting and tough. His motto was, perfection is no accident. Bill Yossis was White House pastry chef for seven years after Messnier retired in 2004. He says his predecessor's work was incredibly creative. He did not repeat desserts. Every occasion had something new. Yassis says Messnier was also confident in his pastries, a must in a high-pressure gig like the White House. Remember, you're often dealing with the uh, social secretary, you know, and of course the first family, the first lady herself and the president. So if you can't sell it, you won't be able to really thrive there. After leaving the White House, Messnier published several books. His first was a memoir titled, rather appropriately, All the President's Pastries. Roland Messnier, pastry chef to five presidents, died last week of complications from cancer. He was 78 years old. This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
Coming up on All Things Considered, a new movie that looks at the attempted comeback of a disgraced pastor of a megachurch. On Wall Street, major stock averages slid for a third week. The Dow gave up a full percent today, 338 points to close at 31,318. S&P lost the same, nearly a full percent to close at 3924. The Nasdaq notched a six-day losing streak. It closed at 11,631. That's down one and three-tenths of a percent. Details on Marketplace at 6.30. It's 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com GBFB. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, with locations in Boston, Milford, and the South Shore, and now Foxborough. Learn more at youhaveus.org. Traffic is heavy on the roads heading into the holiday weekend destinations. Cape Cod traffic is clogged on Route 3 from Pembroke to Plymouth. There are two-mile backups at the bridges. People heading west on the Mass Turnpike are heading delays from Grafton to Auburn. In New Hampshire, Route 95 is slow from Seabrook to Portsmouth. Massachusetts Department of Transportation is urging people to use map apps such as Google, Apple, or Waze before you go. Drivers can use the Sumner Tunnel this weekend. It is open for the holiday weekend. The tunnel is closed on most weekends for major upgrades. In the forecast, overnight tonight, clear skies should be a beautiful night. Temperatures in the mid-50s. And then for tomorrow, sunshine, right about 80 degrees. Sunday, sunshine with some clouds up in the mid-80s. Then for Labor Day, overcast skies, maybe some showers, cooling to about 73 degrees. In the Boston area right now, 70 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. In the new movie Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, Pastor Lee Curtis Childs and his wife Trinity, played by Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall, are trying to fight their way back to the top of the megachurch world. You married a winner, and that's all I intend to do. Hey, I'm Rocky up in this fight. <clears throat> Rocky didn't win. How's that now? Where we find them in the film is there has been, about a year ago, a gigantic scandal that has driven away the majority of their huge megachurch congregation. And they have since hired a documentary film crew to sort of record their rise from the ashes. That is Adama Ibo, director of Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. Both she and her twin sister, Adane Ibo, who produced the movie, grew up religious. So we wanted to know about how their upbringing as Southern Baptists influenced their film, a film which is as much of a love letter to faith as it is a satire of organized religion. This is Adane. We come from a very devout Christian family. Like you go to church every Sunday, you do Bible study on Wednesday, you do Sunday school, you do vacation Bible school in the summer. So it's like, it was very much a part of our identity. On the flip side of that, 
somehow, for some reason, our parents encouraged us to ask questions. They kind of fostered this duality in us. Um, and quite frankly, there's a duality, I think, in, in most of the church-going folks that we know and have known growing up. Yes, we were Christian and we went to church all the time, but we also were encouraged to not just take everything as fact yeah. or as yeah. truth. What kind of questions did you have as you were growing up? Questions about the church's influence on your life? This is Adana again. I, I think, truthfully, we started our our questioning young, I think around age 10. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're millennials, and so we grew up with and loving Harry Potter. <laughs> and I remember hearing a sermon in church one one Sunday that was dedicated, the entire sermon was dedicated to the evils of Harry Potter. Wow. I was like, I, I don't understand this like clearly these people haven't read the book because none of this stuff happens the spells don't work trust me i tried it's not like (laughs) adam and i both were unwilling to give up harry potter but a big one i think for me was like carte blanche like if you're gay you're going to hell and i don't identify as queer or you know gay or lesbian or or any of that but i distinctly remember and i recently reread one of my old journals from elementary school but I wrote, I think God is more open-minded than this. And oh, wow. I, I don't, yeah. and I definitely still believe that. And I, I, it just didn't make sense to me that people choosing to love who they love and literally minding their business and not hurting anybody, why that automatically made them go to hell. And, and I, was, I was a big, I was a big pray. Like I prayed all the time. I still pray most nights and stuff like that. Um, and, and so I feel like I was like constantly talking to God where my spirituality was lying or where it was at the time, even as such a young person, it felt like he was telling me like, that's bull. That is so fascinating. Like as a kid, you were looking at all these churchgoers and thinking, wait, 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 you guys got God wrong. I know what God yeah. has to say. Yeah. You know, as, as, as an older person, I, I think that I've decided that I get to define my own faith and my own spirituality. I don't have to exist within these confines. Um, but at the time, <laughs> it sort of manifested as like, y'all are wrong. There's no way. I'm so curious about that journey that you just referenced. How religious would you say you are now? I mean, have the two of you traveled different paths on this? Um. Oh. Uh, this is Adane <laughs> again. I think uh, Adama, correct me if I'm wrong. I think our paths have been pretty in lockstep. Uh, yeah, in 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 most ways, I think in life, mm-hmm. in most ways. Uh, but definitely in this way. Um, and I think now we feel like we are more spiritual than anything. But I think our spirituality is guided mostly by Christianity, but we, I think, separate spirituality and our relationship with God from the institution of church. I'm asking you all these questions about where your faith is now, because even though there is a lot in this movie that's very critical of megachurches, like the reflexive blind faith of churchgoers and their leaders and the way those leaders seem to expect that blind faith, there's also in this movie a lot of almost like affectionate ribbing that comes from a tender place. Like, oh my God, that $2,000 spider silk church hat. That was hilarious, but it was so lovely. There's so much about Southern Baptist church culture 
that we find beautiful. I, I think the music is outstanding. I think gospel music is probably when I feel the closest to God. But then there are also moments like Adani talked about this sermon about the evils of Harry Potter, where we were like, whoa, 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 y'all have to slow down on this. We don't like this. Yeah. But there are sermons that have lit- have sincerely touched me. And so it's 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 strange, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's this constant back and forth. Um, I think we're just at a point now in our lives where we welcome the yeah. back and forth and we realize that it doesn't necessarily mean that we're bad Christians and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're uh, complicit members of society letting bad stuff happen all the time. You can love something even as you look at it and see the good sitting alongside the not so good. Definitely. I think people do that with their families all the time and church is a, is a family. <laughs> well, for anyone who who does watch this movie who might be questioning their faith or questioning their marriage and wondering from both of you, what do you want people struggling with that to see in this film? What do you want this film to say to them? I think it's important to question things always and to think critically always, specifically of particular institutions that we have decided to let govern our lives and our souls, be it, you know, church or marriage as an institution, in order for them to continue to be relevant in our lives in the way that they hope to be. Uh, yeah, this is Adama. And I would say that I, I, I want, I would love for people to walk away and realize that like, it can all be true. You know what I mean? It, it, like I said previously, you can, you know, love the church and love going to church, but still be very critical of it and want it to be doing better. Um, I think you can love a person very, very deeply um, and not want or need to be married to them. <laughs> um, and I think that you can love God and be queer, most of all. I don't think that, I don't think that, these are opposite ends of the spectrum at all. I think all of these things can manifest as truth and and be true at the same time. And God loves you back and don't let anyone tell you. And God loves you back. Yeah, it's not a one-way street. (laughs) (laughs) So beautifully said. Adama and Adane Ibo's new film is called Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. It's in theaters and streaming on Peacock right now. Thank you both so much. This was so lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for having us. It was lovely to be here. Focus Features, the studio behind this movie, is an NPR funder. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, a new online scam and how it plays on an unsuspecting shopper. We'll tell you what to watch out for. There's an elevated risk of fire again today, especially as humidity drops this afternoon, cooling down to the mid-50s overnight tonight. Sunny and milder tomorrow, about 80 degrees. Sunday, sunshine and clouds both in the mid-80s. Monday's holiday, cloudy and cooler and maybe wet as well. In sports, Red Sox play game two of four with the Texas Rangers tonight. Nick Pavetta pitches for Boston, 7-10 game time. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College. With over 70 part-time graduate programs in high-growth areas such as analytics, supply chain management, health informatics, financial management, and software development. Classes start Tuesday, September 6th. Learn more at bu.edu met. 
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In southern Ukraine, the head of the UN's nuclear watchdog agency says some inspectors will remain at the site of Europe's largest nuclear facility to process information they gathered during yesterday's visit to the plant. It's now controlled by Russian military, which has been battling with Ukrainian forces in the area. The man leading the UN team, Rafael Grossi, says they have been able to check the damage to one of the facilities. We have been seeing um, military activity around the plant, and, and I was able to see uh, myself and, and my team uh, impact holes, um, markings on, on buildings of uh, shelling. He says they don't have enough information yet to determine if the damage was deliberate or not. A handful of inspectors will remain at the plant to ensure the safety of the facility. Election officials on the Navajo Nation are wrapping up a full recount of the tribe's presidential primary held last month. From member station KNAU, Ryan Heinches tells us uncounted ballots there have been discovered as concerns mount about election transparency. Election workers this week discovered three dozen unopened early ballots in one Navajo chapter. They amounted to 10 percent of the votes cast there, deepening the concern of several primary candidates that the results of the August 2nd election could have been inaccurate. They're also questioning why officials are using different voting machines for the recount than were originally used. The Navajo Election Administration did not comment. Ten of the 15 candidates who competed in the primary but didn't advance to November's general election election called for the recount last month amid questions about whether election officials had followed proper procedures. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff, Arizona. Stocks ended the week lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts health officials are reporting the state's second human case of West Nile virus this year. The State Department of Public Health reports today a man in his 70s was recently exposed to the virus in Suffolk County. Last week, a woman also in her 70s in Suffolk County was diagnosed with a mosquito-borne illness. Last year, there were 11 human cases of West Nile virus infections identified in the state. Health officials recommend that you avoid mosquitoes by covering up outdoors, using bug repellent, and drain any standing water around where you live. Without trains running on the orange line, the MBTA says it's already been able to complete half the work to improve safety and the reliability of service. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says although there's been great progress in the first two weeks of the 30-day shutdown, there are no plans to reopen earlier than September 19th as planned. I've consistently emphasized the priority is safety. Productivity and schedule is very important. Safety is, is far above that, so I don't want to put any pressure on anyone to do anything. I want the work done safely. Poftak also says work on the Green Line is on schedule. The union branch is shut down for a month to help complete work on the new Medford branch. State lawmakers are asking the head of the State Department of Public Utilities to testify at a hearing on its role overseeing the troubled MBTA system. 
That request follows the release of a scathing report on the T's safety issued by federal regulators this week. WBUR's Beth Healy has more. In a letter Friday, lawmakers told DPU Chair Matthew Nelson they were disturbed and disappointed by the Federal Transit Administration's findings. They say the feds called out the DPU's failure to adequately oversee the MBTA's safety. State Senator Michael Barrett is co-chair of the Joint Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities and Energy. So far as we can tell, the Transportation Oversight Division of the state DPU has 11 authorized positions. Only nine are filled at present. Barrett says he's worried the DPU can't juggle its work on other issues with the crisis at the T. The DPU had no immediate comment. A hearing is slated for early October. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. The legislature's Joint Committee on Transportation is calling for members of the Federal Transit Administration to testify at their hearing plan for the fall. The FDA refused to testify earlier oversight hearings, saying it did not want to compromise its investigation of the T. And two iconic portraits of former President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama go on display this weekend at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Boston's the final stop on the seven-city tour, and as WBR's Andrea Shea reports, the paintings are not the only things the museum is unveiling. The Smithsonian's portraits of the Obamas have inspired audiences since they debuted in 2018. When visitors see them at the MFA, they'll also notice a new look and messaging on museum banners and signage that reads, Here All Belong. Director Matthew Teitelbaum says launching the MFA's rebranding campaign, along with the Obama portrait's arrival, is intentional. They both have this feeling of outward-facing, sense of belonging, invitation to be part of what the MFA is. The public can visit the museum and see the Obama portraits for free on Labor Day. The display runs through the end of October. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. 68 degrees now in Boston. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Red Sox will give Nip Nevada the pitching honors tonight as they play the Texas Rangers for Game 2 of a four-game series. The Sox are also calling up Connor Wong from AAA Woo Sox. His catching is Wildem in Worcester. Game time tonight is 7-10. The forecast, beautiful holiday weekend on the way, except maybe for the holiday itself. Forecast for tonight, a nice starry night on the cool side in the mid-50s. Tomorrow should warm to about 80 with beautiful sunshine. Sunday, a little less sun, chance of showers, maybe a thunderstorm inching to the mid-80s. And then as the holiday rolls around, clouds roll in, maybe some evening showers Monday, only reaching about 73 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 537. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. A bullet pierced the window of Nicole Ogburn's fourth grade classroom on May 24th in Uvalde, Texas. She told her students to dive to the ground. 
They all escaped through that window and later learned the same devastating news the rest of the country would learn. A gunman had killed 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School. Now, a new school year is beginning. And last week, we visited Nicole Ogburn at the newly repurposed school that will take on some former Robb students. The school has a new name that was written across the front of her bright teal shirt. This is Givaldi Elementary. On the back, it says, together we rise, together we are better. And then this is actually our Rob logo. We met up with her in the classroom that she's sharing this year with her co-teacher. When Ogburn started teaching seven years ago, she said she wanted to change the life of at least one child. I had one little boy and from last year, because, you know, last year's group is a very special group now to me, but he literally ran and slid across the Walmart <laughs> concrete floors and, like, tackled me. And it just makes you feel good that you did something that you connected with that kid. Nicole Ogburn is also thinking about how Uvalde can connect with others and how the country can connect with her town after an unthinkable tragedy. I want our community to show that you can get through it. It's not easy, but you can. Um, I don't want us to be defined by this, like, oh my gosh, like we're the laughing stock of the world right now because of the way things were handled that day. And I don't want us to be known as like, oh, look at those Uvalde people. They, you know, they're not competent enough to, to deal with situations like that. I don't think that was the case that day. I think for me, I've always said never in my whole life have I ever felt unsafe going to work, sending my kids to school. Like, never. You're about to head into a new school year. How are you feeling about that? Nervous, anxious. I think I'm scared for how some of these kids are going to react when they get here and if I'm going to be able to handle that part of it because for a while I haven't been able to handle my own. And am I going to still be able to keep my composure when those kids come in and have, they have an anxiety attack over being here at school and feeling scared? Um, Am I going to be able to handle that? And I hope I am, but I'm not sure. It's not a thing anybody can really teach in an education course. Mm -mm. Do you think about... um, what you'll say or how you can talk to a kid who's scared to be in this room because of what happened. I've thought about it, but at this, I, you know, I told a little girl last year, um, she was, there was a little boy in the class she was scared of. And I said, you know, I'm always going to protect you. You know, I'm not going to let anything ever happen to you. Not knowing this was going to happen. I can't say that now because I don't feel like I can promise they'll be safe. I think we're taking all precautions, but I can't say I promise because if that promise is broken, then they can't trust me. Yeah. That class, like you said, is a special class for you. Are you staying in touch with them? Yeah, we've stayed in touch with some of them, not all of them. Um, But we had a party almost a month after all this happened. I did a GoFundMe. Um, and then we bought them, they're called Pure Vita bracelet, gave them all. And I said, it's tied. We're bonded for life. Like this is, 
not how I wanted us to bond for life. I said, but we are. I know there have been a lot of changes made throughout the district to try to make sure that kids are safe. As a teacher and as a mom who has kids who are school-aged, how do you feel about all of that? Are you feeling like things are as safe as they can be? I think they're working towards it being a lot safer. I don't think we're, we're not there yet because it's taking time. Um, I know here we're waiting on new locks for doors. We're waiting on our perimeter doors are going to have keyless locks. So all we have to do is swipe our card, come in, and it, it, it's already locked. So it's kind of a we're working towards getting being safe. And I think we're going to be okay the first day of school, but it's not going to be 100% done. But it's, it's in the process. How has what happened at Rob earlier this year, if it has, how has it changed how you think about your job as a teacher? I wasn't sure I was going to come back as a teacher. Um, but now my job is, I'm my first thing this year, it's really sad, is I usually look for cutesy stuff for my classroom. My first thing was safety stuff for my classroom. I bought a thing that you jam under the door so that they can't open the door. I bought a curtain to pull down so you can't see in my door if something was happening. Um, we've just thought of more safety this year than how cute's my room going to look, which Right now, we're starting to like make it look cuter, but that was not my first priority. Um, as you think about your students and other kids in Uvalde, perhaps even your own children who are about to return to school, what do you hope this year is like for them? I hope we can get, not past this, but I hope that they can have a happy year. I can hope that they start to feel safe in going places and doing things because I know a lot of the kids even that weren't at Rob are having a hard time feeling safe because this is what surrounded our town all summer. And what about for you? What are you hoping for for yourself next year? That I can get through the year without being a complete emotional wreck but um, having my co-teacher with me has helped a lot because we both said if you don't come back I'm not coming back because we can't do it without each other you said you almost didn't come back what changed your mind I thought first for my own kids if I don't go back that means my two girls they have an excuse not to go back also that's an excuse for kids not to go back oh well that teacher's not going back so why should I go back and I thought I got to go back and show them, okay, Miss Ogburn can go back to school, then so can I. After we spoke, I asked Nicole Ogburn to show us around her classroom. She's added a few new things this year, including a chart that students can use to share how they're feeling. And so you have ready to learn, happy, calm, tired, confused, sad, nervous. And before we left, she wanted to show us their class photos from Rob. She was close to Irma Garcia and Eva Mireles, the two Rob teachers who were killed in the shooting. Their photos hung on the wall next to a sign. It says, those we love don't go away. They walk beside us every day. And that's for us because they're going to be with us every day.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There are a lot of scams on the Internet. Recently, Nick Fountain from our Planet Money podcast heard about one that is so brilliant, he had to figure out how it works. The story starts innocently enough when Nina Collars bought discount coffee pods on eBay. When her order arrived, there were some weird things about it. For one, she expected a, you know, frumpy package someone packed at home. And it's not. It's a, it's a legit Nespresso box packed beautifully. Okay. And I'm thinking to myself, um, this is a little weird. Plus, there were two boxes, and the second one contained a fancy Nespresso coffee machine. So I was well, like, whoa, hold on. Right? Yes. I didn't pay for that. Um, Very strange. They are expensive. To most people, this would be sweet, a free gift, but Collars is a hacker, the kind that tries to do good. So for her, this free coffee machine was a red flag, a sign that something was wrong on the internet. So I call Nespresso, and it is almost impossible to explain to them what is going on. <laughs> hey, somebody here is complaining about getting too much stuff. Exactly. It, like, it doesn't fit in the decision tree of the call center. Does not fit. But she does learn that even though she ordered from eBay and has a credit card charge to prove it, Nespresso has her name in their system for the pods and the machine paid for at full price. Callers decides to run an experiment. She orders more pods on eBay. Each time, same thing, straight from Nespresso and with more freebies. She's pretty sure it's a scam, but what kind of scam sends you free stuff? To answer that, I called up a kind of historian of internet fraud. His name is Patrick McKenzie. But uh, I, I try to stay anonymous uh, in the sketchy parts of the internet. He works for the payments processor Stripe, and he says what callers ran into is a credit card scam called triangulation fraud that's particularly hard to detect. And that's why it is the new hotness in fraud circles. Here's how the scam works. Callers orders from eBay, but the eBay seller is fake. They don't have any coffee pods. Instead, they have stolen credit card numbers. So they pocket the money she sent eBay and use a stolen credit card to order from Nespresso. They are a secret middleman. And what's so devious about the scam is everybody comes out ahead. eBay gets their commission, Nespresso gets a sale, Callers gets exactly what she ordered, plus a little bonus to keep her coming back. Where it all starts to unravel is with the person whose credit card was stolen. They'll report it to their bank, and then the bank will force the merchant to foot the bill. And the business will look at their records and say, well, shoot, we're going to write that off to fraud losses and go about our merry way. This is the final tricky detail working for the fraudster. Lots of retailers are losing little bits of money, but not enough to get them to muster the resources to shut the scam down. But it seems like callers did shut down her fraudster. She sent her findings to the FBI, and a few months later, the discount pods disappeared from eBay. And you know, personally, I'm a sucker for an online freebie. But Collar says, beware. If you're getting something for free on the internet, somebody somewhere is paying for it. And you oh. should probably think about that. Ooh, that, I sh ooh, that makes me feel personally... <laughs> attacked? <laughs> yeah. Feeling personally attacked, Nick Fountain, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we track the candidates for governor with the primary election just days away. After a walk-off win last night, the Red Sox will host the Texas Rangers again tonight for Game 2 of their four-game set. Nick Pavetta pitches for Boston, 7-10 game time. Coming to City Space Tuesday, September 20th, here and now co-host Robin Young joins NPR correspondent Nina Totenberg for a conversation about her book, Dinners with Ruth. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com slash careers. At MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. Another round of funding begins today for arts and culture projects in Boston. Applications are now open for the city's Cultural Council grant program. Last year, the city distributed almost $3.5 million to local arts organizations. Many were recovering from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. In the forecast, look for sunny skies into the evening hours. Should be clear and cool tonight, falling to the mid-50s. And then for tomorrow, sun's back, calm winds hovering around 80. For Sunday, sunny skies, possibly some showers as well, then clouds for Labor Day. I see Gorbachev not as somebody who tried and failed. I prefer to see him as somebody who gave Russia an extraordinary moment of hope and maybe set it on a brief but exciting journey that has shown what Russia can and should be. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Former President Donald Trump is playing a role in the race for governor of Massachusetts. Trump has endorsed Republican Jeff Deal, and he will virtually host a tele-rally for Deal Monday, the day before the primary election. Deal's Republican opponent, businessman Chris Doty, and Democratic contender Maura Healey say Trump's message is out of step with Massachusetts voters. WBR's Anthony Brooks has been following the candidates down the final stretch to the primary. Yesterday, Jeff Deal came to a farm in East Bridgewater to greet voters and some other members of the community. Uh, oh, here's the alpacas. Look at these guys. In the final days before Tuesday's primary, Deal is pushing his conservative message. Among other things, he wants to give part of the state's budget surplus back to taxpayers. He opposes vaccine mandates. He's campaigning against critical race theory as part of a push to make school boards more responsive to conservatives. And Deal's proud to be endorsed by former President Trump, who will lead a virtual rally for him on Monday. I'm not running away from that. I think he did deliver and gave us, uh, even in Massachusetts, some really good economic times. So I think his uh, support of me, I think, is just to reaffirm to the Republicans that he sees me as the best solution for the state for the future. Trump's endorsement may play well with a small Republican base, but it's unlikely to help Deal win in November in a state that has voted against Trump by a two-to-one margin twice. 
That's why his Republican opponent, businessman Chris Doty, says he's the better choice to take on Democrat Maura Healey. There's a large group of citizens, which I call the exhausted middle. They just don't want the extremism on the right that Jeff represents, and they don't want the extremism on the left that Maura represents. And I speak to all voters. Doty says those include moderate Republicans and Democrats, as well as unenrolled voters. Those so-called independents, the largest share of the state's voters, could hold the key for Doty, who's been trailing deal in the polls. According to Secretary of State Bill Galvin, a high number of independents have requested Republican ballots, which could help Doty. Meanwhile, the Boston Globe endorsed him in the Republican primary, and conservative talk show host Howie Carr is urging his listeners to support Doty. Earlier this week, Doty said as a pragmatic Republican with a background in business, he fits the mold of Charlie Baker and other recent Republican governors. The state of Massachusetts has benefited for 22 of the last 30 years to have a fiscally responsible Republican governor as a counterbalance, an offset, and a check and a balance to a very progressive legislature. As Doty calls Deal too tied to Trump, Deal responds that Doty should explain his vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016. While the Republicans go back and forth, Maura Healey is the lone Democrat campaigning heavily favored to win in November. Here she is yesterday in Brockton, where she met with community college presidents at Massasoit Community College. We've got real challenges when you talk about housing, public transit, the cost of living right now. We've got work to do, and I will be a governor focused intently on that. Asked about Trump's scheduled virtual appearance in support of Jeff Deal, Healy, the attorney general who sued the Trump administration dozens of times, said the lines in the race for governor are crystal clear. In terms of what I represent, what I'll bring to people here in the state versus what the Republican Party is going to put forward. And by having Donald Trump come and, and speak, I think that says it all. I don't think that's where voters are at in Massachusetts. Healy, Deal, and Doty all have busy weekends of campaigning ahead as they sprint toward the primary on Tuesday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. All right, let's talk for a second about the video of the corn kid. You know, it's the one where young Tariq is being interviewed by the web series Recess Therapy about a favorite food. For me, I really like corn. Maybe you're more familiar with the song version. Just how popular is this song right now? Well, the official TikTok account of TikTok itself changed its bio to It's Corn. Perhaps this reminds you of the man who in 2010 encountered a majestic sight. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. Double <laughs> rainbow all the way across the sky. Or the local news interview with Antoine Dodson, who addressed the man who invaded his house. We're looking for you. We, we gon' find you. We I'll let you know that. You, so you can run and tell that, run and tell that. All these songs came from the same group. As a band and as a family, they are known as the Gregory Brothers. We make songs out of stuff that wasn't a song before. Michael and Andrew Gregory spoke with our producers today. On their YouTube channel, you'll find they've made a lot of songs from non-songs over many years. I love every kind of cat. I just want to hug all of them. Oh my goodness, oh my damn, oh my goodness, they're going to hear. 
That last one took off just earlier this year. It's based on dialogue from the Netflix hit Stranger Things. I think our videos are really about finding amazing moments on the internet and celebrating them and amplifying them. They're about highlighting like other people's interviews, original words. And I think that has, is what has given our video staying power. That staying power is something all musicians seek. So what has made the Gregory brothers so good at this for so long? They have very good timing and they're, they're very, very good at writing songs. Music industry analyst Tatiana Sirasano says they're not just improving their craft or extremely online. When they started, videos went viral because links were sent around or embedded. But now on TikTok, people are making their own videos using that song clip. So of course it's gonna spread farther and wider and kind of have more of a cultural impact because people are engaging with it in their own way. TikTok just seems to supercharge it with the, the culture of working together and, and remixing. For all their songs, the Gregory brothers split their royalties with the creators of the original videos to honor the people behind the viral moments. So in this case, little Tariq gets a share of proceeds too. Still, they know some people find their music a bit too corny. I just feel bad for them. This is one of the purest, <laughs> most wholesome, beautiful moments in the history of the internet, and you guys could just be having a good time with us. Just be earnest for a minute, eat some corn, enjoy it. After all, it's just a big lump with knobs. It has the juice. It's corn. It's You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. From OCLC, through WorldCat.org, committed to helping users conduct research or find the latest bestseller by accessing libraries around the world. Learn more at worldcat.org. From Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife who will do whatever it takes to save their congregation. In theaters and streaming on Peacock now. And from the Lemelson Foundation. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Public schools in Jackson, Mississippi have been forced to return to remote learning thanks to the ongoing failures in the water system. We're just trying to manage and teachers are trying to teach. And everybody who possibly can is pitching in. We'll hear how families are coping on this Friday, September 2nd. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the parents of one of the survivors of the Robb Elementary School shooting in Uvalde talk about how life has changed for their family. One Republican member of Congress reacts to President Biden's address in which he called MAGA Republicans a threat to American democracy. And on Marketplace this evening, the unemployment rate ticked up in August, but that might actually be a good sign for the economy. Wall Street stocks took a dive today. More ahead on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is touting a new billion-dollar program to support training and local economic development. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports 21 regional partners will receive federal grants. President Biden says the grants range in size between $25 million and $65 million and will help Americans build their skills so that they're not left behind as the country transitions to a more digital economy. This is about investing in them, believing in them. They include $25 million for a robotics cluster in Nebraska and $65 million for training in artificial intelligence technology in Georgia. As new enterprises are created in the communities, they, should have, they shouldn't have to leave. They should be the ones to be able to fill in the, for those jobs. The $1 billion for the program comes from the American Rescue Plan, the nearly $2 trillion economic stimulus package passed last year. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. President Biden's top climate advisor is stepping down from her position. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Gina McCarthy has been instrumental in leading the administration's efforts to combat climate change. She, as you know, has been a leader in what we have seen as one of the, um, the largest investment in dealing with climate change, and we are very uh, sad to lose her. President Biden has tapped John Podesta, a longtime Democratic operative, to serve as senior advisor for clean energy innovation. Biden says Podesta's experience will be a major asset in helping to advance the administration's climate agenda. Emergency crews in Southern California are working to contain two wildfires amid a summer heat wave that's expected to last through Labor Day. Megan Jamerson from member station KCRW reports teams are making progress against the blaze, but the health risk is worsening for firefighters. As crews worked to beat out the route fire Thursday, temperatures soared to 110 degrees and firefighting activity was temporarily halted. Just the day before, seven firefighters were hospitalized with heat-related injuries. Federal workplace guidance says employees should not work in conditions at 108 degrees and above. This puts emergency crews in a conundrum as the West sees climate change increase the likelihood of extreme weather conditions happening at the same time, like drought, severe temperatures, and hotter and faster-spreading wildfires. For NPR News, I'm Megan Jamerson in Los Angeles. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was down 337 points. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Documents from the sexual assault investigations of Boston City Councilor and Suffolk County DA candidate Ricardo Arroyo show that investigators closed one case because they had concluded no crime had been committed based on the evidence they had. The woman who says she was a victim tells the Boston Globe she stands by her allegations. Arroyo's rival in the race, D.A. Kevin Hayden, said in a statement today that nothing in the file indicates the allegations were unfounded. The alleged victim in a second case from 2007 has said that Arroyo did not sexually assault her. Arroyo denies he was ever informed of either investigation at the time, and he denies the allegations. U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services is in Massachusetts today to detail some of the benefits for seniors contained in the Inflation Reduction Act. At the Waltham Senior Center, Javier Becerra said the government will be able to start negotiating prices for some high-cost drugs covered by Medicare. So that way we don't pay 
two to three times more for the same drugs that you get today than they pay in places like Europe. The Health and Human Services Secretary was joined by Senator Elizabeth Warren and Assistant House Speaker Catherine Clark. Recent coyote attacks on pets are raising safety concerns. In the latest incident, two dogs on a walk with their owner were attacked in Cohasset. One of the animals was so badly wounded it had to be euthanized. Kara Holmquist is Director of Advocacy for the MSPCA. She says anyone approached by a coyote should make noise, yell at the animal, and move away. They are naturally afraid of humans. They don't want to be around us, but when um, they view us as a food source or people are feeding them, um, that can change. And so we really want to get them to be afraid of us. Holmquist advises that pets be leashed and not be left outside alone. She tells homeowners to keep lids on their trash and cut back brush in yards so coyotes don't have a place to hide. In the forecast, cooling down to the mid-50s tonight. For tomorrow, sunny and milder, up around 80. Should be a beautiful day tomorrow. Sunday, sun and clouds both in the mid-80s. Monday's holiday, cloudy and cooler and maybe wet as well. 68 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Last night, during a rare primetime speech, President Biden delivered a warning and took direct aim at the former president. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Biden went on to say that the country is at an inflection point and that, quote, America must choose to move forward or to move backwards. Now, there are a lot of Republicans out there who were not pleased with the speech, to say the least. And to talk more about that, we're going to bring in former Republican Representative Barbara Comstock of Virginia. Welcome. Great to be with you, Elsa. Great to have you. Okay, so what stood out to you the most from the president's speech last night? Well, listen, I am not a MAGA Republican, but the way I would have framed it, so I agree with the theme, but the way I would have framed it is I would have more highlighted Donald Trump and his Trump-supported candidates. And so I would have highlighted things like, you know, just uh, this week, Trump demanded that he be unconstitutionally restored to power and be put in the White House, and that just yesterday he promised to pardon people who were violent protesters at the Capitol and beat Capitol police officers with flagpoles and stormed the Capitol. And I would have highlighted things like Doug Mastriano, who's running for governor um, in uh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. who was one of those people um, in at, at the Capitol on January 6th who's refused to cooperate um, with the January 6th committee. And he is associating with anti-Semites and who... Uh, with the three percenters, and he dressed up in a Confederate, you know, outfit just recently, you know, the losers in the Civil War, and, you know, has has really, um, you know, has troubling background. And then I would have okay. highlighted these Trump candidates themselves instead of the more broad brush he did. But okay. definitely there is Trump candidates 
who are a big problem, who are anti-democratic. So I would have highlighted it more like that. Okay, so you take issue with things that he did not mention. But I want to talk about the way President Biden parsed the language he did use, because he noticeably did not refer to Republicans in general. Rather, he singled out MAGA Republicans, and he name-checked former President Trump a few times. And I'm wondering, you are a Republican who's been a vocal critic of Trump. Did Biden successfully make that distinction between MAGA Republicans and Republicans who don't support Trump? Or did you feel that Biden was also talking about people like you? No, I don't feel like he was talking about me, but I think he gave other Republicans, I think, it, you know, gave him an opportunity to kind of say, hey, he was talking about all of us, when I think he clearly wasn't. But I think the political goal, which was to get, you know, everyone talking about Trump, which You know, now a lot of these Republicans, I think foolishly, many Republicans are now kind of tying themselves to Trump in a way which I think is politically foolish, because at a time when Republicans who seem to have an advantage this year are now, instead of talking about the economy and gas prices and groceries, Mm -hmm. instead of now lash themselves to the Mar-a-Lago mess and um, all of Trump's problems, and at a time when they should do with what Glenn Youngkin did last year and talk about kitchen table issues, they're instead tying themselves to this lunacy and, and Trump, who, you know, is the guy who lost the House, the Senate, the White House and the two Georgia seats. They now have put their hands into this man who is all about chaos and losing. And we're seeing all of these candidates who he endorsed well, on that point, now running behind. So on that point. Dumb, yeah. A significant portion of your party was outraged by Biden's speech last night, the multiple references to former President Trump. I mean, what do you think that says about Trump's influence over the whole party right now, that the conversation is still about him? I I think it's uh, deadly to the party. And I think the longer the party stays enthralled to him and tied to him, I think the longer the party is going to be losing um, in the in the long term. I think. Uh, This year, you're going to have seats like the Pennsylvania governor's race, probably the Senate race, other uh, Senate seats like, say, Blake Master and Carrie Lake in Arizona, perhaps uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia, that would have been winnable in what should be a good Republican year are probably going to be lost. And other House seats that should have been won will be lost because they've been Trump weak candidates when they could have been. Um, stronger mainstream Republicans who are going to be turned off by these, you know, radical Trump candidates who are not sellable to independents and more swing and and Republicans mm-hmm. like myself who don't well, want to have these let me, Trump sycophants who are not appealing let me to ask you a this. broader group of people. The fact that President Biden last night chose instead of to focus on, as you call it, kitchen table issues, but instead talk about threats to democracy and in particular about former President Trump. Did you feel that Biden's speech had the risk of actually elevating Trump's influence in your party in any way? What do you think? Well, no, I think it's important. I mean, the number one issue right now is the threat to democracy that I think Democrats, independents, and many Republicans um, are concerned about. So I do think that's an important issue that all Americans, you know, many Americans are concerned about. It's the number one issue. So I do think it's an issue many people want addressed. I'm just saying okay. it's better to use specifics in how you're addressing it. And I think okay. going forward, candidates, whether you're Republican or Democrat, should use those specifics. And I think they'll be stronger. And I think I would reference for everyone 
Bill Barr addressed it today when he talked about Mar-a-Lago. I would quote Bill Barr saying, you should all be concerned about what uh, Donald Trump did at Mar-a-Lago because there's no excuse for it. And that's Donald Trump's own attorney general who said that. That is former Republican Representative Barbara Comstock of Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. A few weeks ago, NPR education correspondent Corey Turner brought us a hopeful back-to-school story from Jackson, Mississippi. Schools were open, students were back, and District Superintendent Eric Green was in a playful mood. Is this second grade? Third grade. What grade? Third grade. No. No. Well, since then, heavy rains overwhelmed the city's already failing water system, and earlier this week, the superintendent was forced to do the one thing he was determined not to do, send students home to learn remotely. Corey recently checked in with Green and has this story. The water situation in Jackson has been bad for years. Still, Superintendent Green says when he and I were together for the first week of school, he never imagined he'd be sending everyone home three weeks later. This right here, it's it's almost unbelievable. If I weren't living it and talking about it all freaking day, almost unbelievable. The city's been under a boil water notice for a month, but that wasn't enough to keep schools closed, Green says. Staff brought in bottled water, they boiled water in the cafeterias, and doubled down on packaged foods like muffins. But then during school on Monday, toilets across the district stopped flushing because of low water pressure. In that time, we're just trying to manage and teachers are trying to teach. And everybody who possibly can is pitching in to manually flush toilets. Imagine that. So Tuesday, Green had no choice but to close school buildings and get the message out to teachers, a message they'd been dreading. (sighs) Virtual for the remainder of the week. Latasha Cancer teaches third grade reading in Jackson, and she's been using one word a lot lately, prayerfully. Prayerfully, we'll be back in the building next week. But we don't know. We don't know. That means this morning, she taught online in an eerie echo of how many of her kids spent their first grade year because of the pandemic. All right, let me make sure I got all the kids. One, two, three, four. She took attendance, helped several students log on, and then jumped into a lesson. The soil and excellent temperatures make it possible... That is third grader Malachi Richardson, who tells me outside of class that his mom and dad have to boil their water at home. Even if there is still low water pressure, like I think last time the water is still brown and dirty. Malachi says they also have to use their boiled water sparingly. Since we can't use our own shower, we take a bird bath. (laughs) That's what we call them at our house, we call them bird baths. Malachi's mom, Candy Bolden, says she bought a $5 kiddie pool and put it in the kitchen to store the water they boil. But she says cooking is still hard because you not only need clean water to cook, you need it to do the dishes, too. That's the most difficult. We've eaten out more this week than we actually can afford to because it's just difficult trying to keep everything clean. When I ask Malachi's mom and dad, Michael Richardson, if having their kids home has disrupted their work schedules? Yes. (laughs) Yes, uh, profoundly so. You know, having to tag them along with me, and it's a lot more to consider than normal. Candy herself is a teacher and says things like working and learning are that much harder when you have to worry about something as basic as water. People have to feel they are comfortable enough and not in survival mode constantly 
so that they can thrive. And Jackson doesn't allow for that. Candy and Michael hope, as does Superintendent Green, that school will be back in person next week. And if it isn't, Mrs. Bue Cancer says she will keep telling her third graders what she's told them at the end of every Zoom class this week. I make sure that I tell them, I pray that you are okay. I pray that you have everything you need. It was great seeing you today and prayerfully we'll see you tomorrow. Corey Turner, NPR News. Misinformation about elections is driving changes that will make it harder to run elections. Take the state of Washington, where a conservative county's leaders have cast out on something called an Albert sensor. That's a device that monitors election systems for hacking attempts. All right. So we'll call the afternoon uh, meeting to order. I'll make a motion that we remove the Albert sensor or shut it down. That's today on our daily news podcast, Consider This. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in business news. The major stock averages slid for a third week. Dow gave up a full percent, 338 points, to close at 31,318. S&P lost the same amount, nearly a full percent, to close at 3924. Nasdaq notched a six-day losing streak. It closed at 18,631. That's down one and three-tenths percent. Marketplace has details at 630. It's 619. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. If you're driving to Cape Cod for the weekend, now's a good time to get on the road. The slowdowns on Route 3 have eased up, and the backups are are minimal on the bridges. Sox will give Nick Pavetta pitching honors tonight as they play the Texas Rangers for Game 2 of a four-game series. Sox are also calling up Connor Wong from the AAA Woo Sox. His catching has wowed him in Worcester. Game time is 7-10. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Gloucester Stage Company with Paradise Blue by Dominique Morisseau, a music-infused drama set in a 1950s Detroit jazz club, now playing. Tickets at GloucesterStage.com. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. Sunshine through the evening hours, clear and cool tonight, falling to the mid-50s. Sun's back tomorrow, calm winds a little bit milder, hovering to about 80 degrees. And then for Sunday, moving to the mid-80s with sunny skies, we could get rained on as well on Sunday. And for Labor Day, clouds take over, possible showers, thunderstorms, temperatures dipping to the mid-70s. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. This week, we've been bringing you stories from Uvalde, Texas, where a new school year is beginning. It's the first since the deadly shooting there in May. Classes have already started for some students in homeschooling programs and some who go to private schools. Well, we're just trying to relate to everyone that schools are beacons of hope 
That's Joseph Olan. He's the principal of Sacred Heart Catholic School. 30 students impacted by the shooting at Robb Elementary got scholarships to attend Sacred Heart this year. Our producers, Janaki Mehta and Alejandra Marquez Hanse, stopped by the campus on a recent weekday after school. But before they could ask Olan any questions, he quickly started talking about a topic on just about everyone's minds in Uvalde school security. As you see, we have a lot of polycarbonate coverings on our windows and doors. They'll be replaced by steel reinforced frames and doors. Obviously, it's all ballistic grade materials that'll cover all uh, Ballistic doors glass doors. on, you know, all the outer doors and everything and the fencing and everything. Plus, it's smaller, you know. That's Oscar Arona, who later echoed what he knows about the security at Sacred Heart. His son, Noah, who survived the Rob shooting, is going there this year thanks to one of those scholarships. Noah was shot in the back and is still recovering from his injuries, but he was able to start classes last month. There's much more control. Smaller classroom. Smaller classes as well, so he'll get more attention, which I think he's going to need. And I I think he's going to do well. That's what our hopes are, at least. We spoke with Oscar and his wife, Jessica Arona, on a rainy night in a library conference room. Noah sat at a nearby table during our conversation. Dressed in bright purple shorts and a black bucket hat, Noah mostly played his handheld Nintendo Switch. At times, he was watching and listening as we spoke. I asked Oscar and Jessica how life has changed for them and for Noah in the last three months. For one thing, we no longer make long-term plans because we're not sure how he's going to be feeling or if there's something that's going to trigger him that day. Uh, Even though he's been going through trauma counseling, the therapy and things of that nature, there's still certain situations he's not comfortable with, you know, even at home when it's just us three. Uh, you know, ranging from not being able to sleep at night, not wanting to leave their house, any kind of noise startles them, things of that nature. Some people don't understand that because, you know, you see him right now and he seems like... He looks normal. But, you know, even when you just reach for his shoulder that's wounded, he just kind of flinches. Uh, just to give you an example, Normally, at the end of the day, I go one way, she goes the other way and take our showers and everything. But now he's like, okay, who's going where? And can you wait till mom gets out? Or mom, can you wait for dad gets out? I assume that is something that has changed since May 24th. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that was not the case before. I mean, it was, but now it's part of our life. I mean, we're concerned, I'm concerned. Some of the counselors have thrown around the term, the PTSD. You know, he was in there for quite a while. So now that the time frame, I think, is up to like 83 minutes or something like that, where he had to lay there, you know, with two deceased teachers and several deceased classmates, uh, and then hear everything that was going on in the other classroom. I can't even begin to imagine that myself, mm-hmm. much less a 10-year-old having to go through that. As I understand it, Noah's back in school now, right? Yes, so he's, this is his second week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is at a this is at a new school, right? It's at Sacred at a new Heart. School. It's at Sacred Heart Catholic School, and uh, I'm hopeful that the district will be ready in two years. That should be more than enough time for them to, you know, do what they say that they were going to yeah. do. What would ready look like for you? What would the district need to do to make you feel safe in sending your child back to that district at some point in the future? Mm-hmm. Probably the first step would be to have the fences up, even though someone told me that somebody already scaled one of the fences just to see. But I think it would be a, a deterrent. They need to shore up their 
the security, not just with police officers, but the system itself, locked doors, cameras, IDs, things of that nature. So even if somebody does get through the police, they still can't get into the classroom. And again, it's not a knock on the school. It's a tall order, but at some point in time, it's going to have to be filled. You've talked about your desire to make sure that Noah has everything he needs to cope and to grow and to be able to live as full a life as possible. I, I want to ask you about the financial toll that this has taken on your family. I know you mentioned taking him back and forth to appointments. How mm-hmm. have you been dealing with that? Has it been a strain for you all? It has been, but we both work. And um, I went back to work. We both went back to work the week after. The week after we got home um, because we know that we ha- we need to work to pay our bills. We uh, have applied in some places for uh, help with, you know, funds. There's a lot of money that has been distributed, donated to assist us and to assist the deceased and everything, and we don't see a lot of that because there's a bureaucracy that we have to deal with. What do you want people to know about what your family lived through that day and what you have been living through every day since then? Uh, I think the biggest thing that we were dealing with was we felt guilty because our son survived. Amidst all this carnage and everything, we were asking ourselves, why? How did our son survive? We didn't have uh, an opportunity to mourn. Uh, you know, it's, I'm sorry, it's difficult for me to discuss. You go, because. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think first and foremost, what's gotten us through is our faith in God. I've just, you know, it's been bottled up and I, I, I haven't really shown any emotion. Um, to let it out, uh, Oscar has been more I emotional. do, because I can't keep it in. And, I mean, um, again, only because, I mean, we have to be strong for him. Yeah, and I think what a lot of people don't realize is that they, they say that we're, we were the lucky ones. We don't feel lucky. We feel bad for our friends, our neighbors, our relatives that lost their babies. They just don't know what our fears are. Our fears are that our son, we want him to grow up and have a healthy, normal life. But we also have to prepare for that maybe that's not going to happen. What do you want the world to know about your son? Well, unfortunately, he is not the same. But he is. um, He is a funny kid, always trying to make us laugh. Um... A smart Alex sometimes. Yeah, I think he gets um, that from his mom. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, he loves Pokemon. Um, he's very loves creative. Uh, he loves art. to draw. He art. likes to draw and paint. Um, so I think all of that, the way he used to be, will be one day. Because we're not going to let this rule our lives. And we're going to go forward and overcome That was Oscar and Jessica Arona. Their son, Noah, survived the shooting at Robb Elementary School. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund and its commitment to advancing social, economic, and racial justice. Join LZF for its Untold Stories event September 22nd at the Royal Sinesta Hotel in Cambridge. Information, sponsorships, and tickets at thelennyzakemfund.org slash events. And Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com.